Amen. God bless you today. It's good to be gathered with you again today. We joined you uh, virtually last week, though none of you probably were able to see that. But it was a it was a joy to be able to do that. The last time that we had really traveled away from home, we weren't doing that yet, and uh, and so it was a joy to be able to tune in and and to see at least a few faces, to hear some voices, some crying babies in the background that we got. Oh, we know who that is, um, and uh, and still have at least some manner of connection. Uh, with the body. And even though we missed only one Sunday, we missed two missional communities. And so it felt even longer uh, than it really was uh, because we missed that connection. And uh, it may be funny to think of it this way, but that actually was an endearment uh, because it meant that even in a short period of time that we've sort of relaunched our smaller groups, these missional communities, that our hearts have already begun to be knit together, uh, that we would feel that distance and feel that separation uh, over that time. And so we praise God uh, that he has done that work. And uh, if you are not a part of one of those uh, smaller groups, those missional communities, uh, I would encourage you to Become a part of one and figure out how you can do that. Talk to Joel uh, or Caesar or myself, and we can make sure that uh, you have an open invitation to join uh, one of those smaller groups. Uh, we are still, uh, as it is summer, in our Summer in the Psalms series, and uh, we are in week eight of that series where we've been going through uh, a different psalm or portion of a psalm every week during this summer season. And so today we are looking at Psalm 49. Um, this is, I believe, is this our fourth or fifth year of doing summer in the Psalms? I know we, we skipped one. I think it's our fourth year of doing summer in the Psalms. We skipped one summer at some point because we were in the middle of something we just felt like we needed to carry on throughout the summer. Um, and, you know, those first couple of years, because of the way we've done it, instead of saying we're going to start at Psalm 1 and go all the way to Psalm 150, but rather we're inviting uh, different men in the body to step up and preach during this time, we've kind of left it open. And we said, hey, you know what? Uh, preach on whichever psalm that the Lord really lays on your heart and, and impresses you with. And so, to be quite honest, uh, year one probably represented everybody's favorite psalms. You know, it was like, well, which, which is that psalm that I'm most familiar with? Let me go there first. And, uh, and so as the years kind of have gone by, you know, you get to that point where it's like, well, maybe I've kind of started to run out of those ones that are really near and dear or special or have been I'm most familiar with. And so this year, as I considered, at least for my portion of what to preach through, uh, I felt led to actually go with the lectionary. So every week here is Redemption Hill, we have a psalm that begins our time of adoration. And so we don't draw a lot of attention to this every week, but if you'll look at your liturgy, your order of service, you'll notice that each of our different segments kind of have a heading. And there's a kind of flow that our service moves through, begins with revelation. It moves from revelation to confession, because as God himself is revealing himself to us through his holy and righteous word, we are confronted 
with His holiness. We are confronted with His majesty. We are confronted with His glory. And so it's natural for us then to move from revelation to confession. To say, God, we agree that you are holy and we are not. That we recognize that, that even in this moment, on this day, on this Lord's day, when we are confronted with your majesty revealed through your word and your holiness, we're going to take a moment to recognize you are holy and we are not. And so we confess, we confess our sin, we recognize that from the last Lord's Day of being launched back into the world to this Lord's Day of coming before the presence of God, that we've picked up some stuff along the way that's not righteous, that's not holy, that doesn't belong to Him. And so rather than going through a whole worship service, having those things in the back of our mind where the enemy would try to use them to plague our conscience and rob us of joy and keep us from fully entering in because because we know those things that we have done and have not done, we're going to confess them. And this beautiful thing happens that after we have made confession, we can now what? We can openly rejoice and adorate, live in adoration of this God who even though He is holy, has promised to us that if we would confess our sin... That by His very nature and character, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that we can move rapidly from that place of confession to rejoicing in our forgiveness, our collective forgiveness, and adore Him. And rather than trying to pick up our own words to begin with, we're going to borrow the words that He gave us to return to Him in the psalm. And so together, our first real together moment after confession is to just lift up adoration from the psalms to the Lord. I love that. And we do that every week. And so now in this fourth year, instead of trying to rack my brain of which psalm am I going to go to, and and I said, you know what? We have a psalm every week. I'm just going to go with what's there. Now that doesn't mean... We've required the rest of everyone who's preaching this summer to do that. But for me, that's been a joy. And let me tell you, it's kind of like when I first started preaching through the text of Scripture, instead of looking at it topically as we did years ago, just going verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, through a different text of Scripture. And what I found then, I'm finding now in the Psalms. I'm being forced to deal with things that in my own sinful nature, I would rather maybe avoid. And I'll just be honest. If I had been picking out the Psalms for this summer, I probably would not have picked Psalm 49. And that just tells you a little bit about me. Right? But... Over this last week, as I have read this psalm and listened to this psalm, I try to do that. I I read it. I listen to it over and over again throughout the week as I study. I have found new 
appreciation for this beautiful psalm, Psalm 49. Now, we read together the first 13 verses of this psalm, uh, and so at the beginning. And so what we're going to do now, instead of reading through the whole thing, we're going to just finish the remaining verses of this psalm. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read verses uh, 14 through 20. 14 through 20 of Psalm 49. I invite you to read along with me. At the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond in true praise by saying thanks be to God. And uh, I'll just remind you that there is a, an exclamation point at the end of that thanks be to God. It is emphatic. Let's, let's begin. Verse 14. Like sheep that are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Here we are in Psalm 49. I want to just say, first of all, how appreciative I am of Pastor Joel. Uh, last week, going through Psalm 138. If you missed it, I encourage you to listen to it on the podcast or via YouTube. I'm appreciative of Mike Danley and Mitch Thompson, who've been so faithful to make sure that those sermons get loaded up every week, and what a blessing it is. Uh, whether you're here and you want to go back and revisit, or if you were gone, and you can go and you can listen uh, there. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, for your faithfulness with that. It's, it truly is a blessing. It was a blessing for me, especially this last week while we were away. Uh, also, just want to say thank you, Robert, for praying uh, today and, and those who prayed while we were away. Um, we, we had a great time away with my wife's family. Uh, we're a global family. We have family in Zimbabwe, Africa, in Australia, in Northern Ireland, and all over the United States, and uh, we had a special opportunity while my wife's cousin and her sons uh, were visiting from Northern Ireland to go and be with them in New Mexico for several days, and that was just an absolute blessing. Uh, My wife grew up, uh, literally, you could stand on the roof of any of her house or her aunt's and uncle's house or her grandmother's house and throw a rock at the other houses and hit them. Um, And they grew up in a very tight-knit family in a Portuguese community. Uh, We joke, uh, someone asked me if I'd seen my big fat Greek wedding two, the second one. And I said, no, I've not seen that movie. I don't have to see that movie. I live that movie every time my wife's family gets together. Um, and, uh, and truly that, if you want a picture of what their family is like, go watch those movies. 
that'll give you a pretty good idea. Um, it's big, it's loud, it's boisterous, it's joyful, and we eat a lot of really good food. We drink some good wine, we enjoy one another's company. And so it really was a, a, a great time to be together. And we're just appreciative of everyone's prayer and those who helped us get there along the way. It was, it was awesome. And, but it is good to be home. And, uh, and so we're glad to be here. But it was good to tune in to Joel preaching last week. And um, it's just awesome to, to, even though we are away, to still have that connection uh, with you all uh, at that same time. So praise God for that. Here we are in Psalm 49. If you remember, uh, we've continued to kind of bring up, and this is merely a way to help you understand the structure of the book of Psalms. I remember growing up and feeling like the Psalms were so disjointed. It, it just felt like this random collection of 150 different songs. But if you zoom out a little bit, you can begin to see that there is some measure of structure. It's not the same kind of structure that you would expect. It's not necessarily intuitive because all of these 150 Psalms were written over a great expanse of time. And it was only later that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those who were constructing the canon of Scripture, uh, by God's inspiration, were able to lay them out in a particular fashion. That was a big part of what Joel showed us last week when we asked the question, why is Psalm 138, Psalm 138, and not Psalm 5 or 15 or 29? Uh, there is structure that is there even if you don't see it. Sometimes when you're reading the Psalms and your nose is stuck right there in one of the Psalms, you can experience that uh, old cliche that you can't see the forest for the trees, which means you're so close up next to it that you can't really see exactly what's going on. And so if we zoom out, we can see that there is, even inspirationally given, uh, this structure of five different books. And if we look at those five different books, we see that each of those five books, those groupings of psalms, have a different theme. And so we've said in that sense, instead of looking at the psalms as one book in general, we can receive it more like a box set of five different books. And so Psalm 49 is contained in book 2, which makes up Psalms 42 through 72. And so borrowing from Dr. Robert Godfrey in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms, he gives a delineation or a title to these different books. And the title that he gives to book 2, which I think is very fitting, is The King's Commitment to God's Kingdom. The King's Commitment to God's kingdom. And so here, Psalm 49 is in that book 2. Now it's interesting that book 2 begins with and carries through several psalms, from Psalm 42 to Psalm 49. Each of those psalms will take up the title, uh, almost verbatim or close to, to the chief musician or choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, there are 11 psalms total in all the book of 150 psalms that are addressed this way, a psalm of the sons, sons of Korah. 
Now, what's interesting is that's just the title of this psalm, okay? We haven't even got into verse 1 yet. But just the mention of the sons of Korah ought to bring up thoughts of God's grace for us as these members of the tribe of Levi called the sons of Korah were descendants of an ancestor who committed great rebellion against the Lord. And yet, and this is interesting, at the time of that rebellion, Korah's, while Korah received, I would say, just punishment from the Lord, his sons were spared and were not given a reason now, why, why would that matter? It would matter because Korah himself had leadership over his sons. And as one member of the tribe of Levi, his, his posterity was tasked with particular um, work in the temple, the tabernacle first, and then the temple of God. And so he had leadership over them. And as such, they would have followed his leadership. And he led in a rebellion that you would think those who followed after him would share in his destruction. And yet, the sons of Korah were spared. And God was pleased later to have the prophet Samuel come from this line, as well as to eventually, under David's reign, have these sons of Korah come to be great musical leaders in the worship of God for his people. And so even though their ancestor was embroiled in this great rebellion against the Lord, we can see God's grace. Rather than smiting that whole line, God raised up from that line after Korah men who are faithful to the Lord. Now there's some question as to whether or not the Psalms bearing their name are written by them or if they were for them. And in some of the older translations, you'll see that instead of it saying uh, uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah, it will say a psalm for the sons of Korah. Uh, and in that sense, it, it seems almost as if uh, they were written uh, not by them, but they were given to them to sing or to put to music. Either way, their mention reminds us that our God is gracious and merciful. And hear me, listen to this. That we do not have to, we're not bound to, follow in the footsteps and the sins of our fathers, but by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, if we will apply ourselves to His service, we can learn a better way. And just knowing some of our stories in this room, I know that there are those who are sitting here today who are in this place and living the life that you're living today that is contrary to the path of your fathers in a positive way, in a righteous way. That by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, you have been able to break free from uh, the path that was forged by your fathers in a way that was headed to destruction. And so praise God for that. And, and that is a testimony to God's grace and goodness where the rest of the world would say, 
hey, you know what? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And that those whose fathers battled with this sin or that sin, or some may term it in these demons or that demons, that that their, their posterity will be destined to do the same. Scripture says, no, that's not true. That by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can learn a better way. Now, I know we broke up the reading today, so I want to draw your attention to the tripart division of this psalm, or the three parts we can easily see if we'll look at it all together. In verses 1 through 4, we have a call of wisdom. Now, many times in Scripture, we will see that wisdom is personified. And so there is a sense in which uh, the psalmist is taking up the authority of this uh, uh, personified wisdom, and he's making a call uh, to everyone to listen to this teaching, the teaching of the psalmist. In this sense, the psalmist is wisdom herself. And she is calling to us to listen, okay? And so this psalm, together with just a few other of the psalms, fits into a unique category among the psalms as belonging to the genre of wisdom literature in the scriptures. Now, it is still a song, okay? So it doesn't cease to be a song. Its, its genre is, is poetry, it's, it's song. And yet, because of the structure of this song, it also fits simultaneously into the wisdom literature in the Scriptures. Normally, we would associate this type of literature with Proverbs, uh, with the book of Job as like a real-life parable, uh, and the book of Ecclesiastes. But there are also a few psalms that seem to fit into that category as well, and Psalm 49 is certainly one of them. This has led some to believe that perhaps Solomon was the writer, the author, the psalmist in this case, uh, though we do not know for sure. Many more still settle on David, though these psalms, these didactic or teaching psalms that carry with it this uh, seem to fit in that wisdom literature, they definitely carry a different voice uh, than some of the rest of David's psalms. Now, you've heard me talk about that before in terms of uh, if we look at the Gospel of John and John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and you read those works together, you can hear, in a sense, what we would call John's voice. And you compare uh, the Gospel of John and John's epistles to... Uh, the book of Luke and some of the uh, the book of Acts, and you can you can begin to see that there's a difference in voice between Luke's gospel and John's gospel. It's the same Holy Spirit. It comes together. It fits with all of Scripture. You can hear one voice of God through them both, and yet you can begin to kind of decipher. The more familiar you get with them, you can be like. You know, and some theological nerds will kind of geek out and be like, that's, that's so Luke, you know, that's so Luke, you know, when he says this or that, or, yeah, that's really John, you know, he, he, that you can hear John there, or Paul. And so, likewise, with the Psalms, there are some of those Psalms that before you even look at the heading, you're like, that's David. 
You can really, there's this familiarity that you've begun to get with some of these psalms. And you go back and you look, you know, maybe you, maybe you hear just a verse or, or someone's sharing just one or two verses of a psalm and you're like, oh man, that's so David. And you go back and you look in a psalm of David and you're kind of like, yeah, I recognize that. That was cool, right? Well, these psalms, these wisdom psalms, do seem to carry a different sort of voice. And that has caused some people to go, well, maybe it, it could be David, but maybe maybe it was Solomon, or maybe it was these sons of Korah. We don't really know. They definitely carry a different voice, okay? And, and so verses 1 through 4, that's the first division. We have this call of wisdom to listen, and we understand that, that wisdom wants to, through this song, teach us something, okay? The second section of Psalm 49 is verses 5 through 12. And verses 5 through 12 offer a stark warning to all of its listeners that there is nothing and no one on this earth that can redeem any of us from the appointment we each have with death. And as we read together, first at the beginning of the service and then together before the sermon, uh, this psalm is bleak. I mean, there's no question what this psalm is about. This psalm is about death. It's about death. And what it lifts up more than anything is this message to all of the world that material wealth will not be able to purchase us a pass on death. Now, that seems really intuitive, right? Like, if we really think about it, we all kind of know that intuitively. And yet, if we survey our world right now, what do we see? We see at every level and in every place, everyone is at some, in some way, shape, or form trying to at least delay if not somehow get out of dying, get out of death. We see it in every story that we tell. Uh, someone is in some way, shape, or form trying to cheat death. And so in light of that, the application which the psalmist begins with is what? That we should not fear in times of trouble. This seems bleak at best, okay? So verses 5 through 12 kind of really bring the theme of death out and, and declare to us that no one is going to be able to cheat their way out of this appointment with death. The last section of the psalm is verses 13 through 20, which contain this beautiful foreshadowing and gospel promise that though no one here and now can purchase or redeem us from death, it is too costly or precious. The richest and most powerful man could never afford to pay that which he cannot possess or give. Yet Psalm 49 shines through the bleak darkness to the promise that while no man can purchase ransom from God for death, God himself will ransom and redeem the upright. In this case, this means the faithful, or in other words, the faith-filled. So let's look at this psalm together. Verses 1 through 4, we'll read again here. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, 
all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Now, I don't feel it necessary to draw too much more attention to the title, as we've already discussed a bit about the sons of Korah. But look at verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. The psalmist is seizing authority here. He's taking up a position of authority whereby he seems to believe that he has this authority to command the attention of everyone. Hear this, all peoples. Now this is an all without exception. Remember, like a therefore, we must always ask what the therefore is therefore. Whenever we see an all in Scripture, we need to ask a very important question. Is this an all without exception or an all without distinction? Uh, Many times you'll find Paul in the New Testament using the word that we translate into the English all as an all without distinction, meaning that he's not distinguishing between different groups of people, rich and poor, or, or uh, those in positions of authority. Those end up being some of those problem texts that people want to come and present to you and say, well, here it says God's going to save everyone. And of course, we know that's not the case. And so the way you deal with those passages is you have to deal with the all. Is it an all without exception or is it an all without distinction? Here, the psalmist is not being hyperbolic. So when he says... All here, all peoples, we can see from the text, because he goes on, what does he say? All inhabitants of the world, low and high, rich and poor together. In other words, when he says all here, he actually really means all. He's talking about everybody, everywhere, for all time. Now think about it, that's some pretty big authority that he is taking on himself. In other words, what? In whose authority? Who has the authority to call all people everywhere for all time? Only God. And so here he is, in other words, essentially saying, thus says the Lord. Hear, hear me in the authority of the Lord. And so he's crying out for everybody. This lets us know that even though this was a Hebrew Jewish psalm written and given to the Hebrew Jewish people for their corporate and gathered worship, yet the truth of this psalm is not just true for the Hebrew people, it's true for everyone everywhere. It's quite an authority to exercise and he is trying to get our attention. And so in some sense, this is like the what? The hear ye, hear ye that people used to, the town crier used to go out, and when he needed everybody's attention, he would ring the bell. And what do we say? Hear ye, hear ye. And when you heard that, you knew, hey, I better pay attention because this obviously is something so important that we've sent somebody out to go out and cry it out to everybody. Or if you remember some of your literature, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get everyone's attention. He wants everyone to listen. 
And so as he goes on here, as the psalmist goes on here, you can see that he makes it clear as he calls out those on both sides of the great divide. What is the great divide? Well, it's that divide that even if all other boundaries and markers and borders that divide humankind were taken away, one would always still remain. And that would be the divide between the haves and the have-nots. The haves and the have-nots. You may say, oh, but in a utopian society, all would be equal. They would all be given the same amount. The problem with that is that someone gave them the same amount, which means in that economy, my friend, it is not money that matters, but rather authority. And you would still have the haves and the have-nots. It just would be calculated not in terms of dollars and cents, but in terms of power and authority. And so as the psalmist says here, both low and high, rich and poor together, And you'll see that throughout this psalm, the psalmist will focus his gaze primarily on the faux comfort of material wealth and gain. As we read already in Ecclesiastes, what is it? There Solomon was saying, what? I, I had everything at my disposal. Solomon was one of these people who, who would be, in our estimation, like the Elon Musk of today. Is there anything that he can't do if he wanted to do? Essentially, he could do it. We, we've, we've kind of seen stories or heard about those times where someone goes into some place, a hotel or a restaurant or something, and they don't like the service, and what do they do? They just write a check. Hey, guess what? You're fired. Who are you to fire me? Well, I just bought this place. Here you go. Get out. I mean, there, there's no list, seems to be no limit to what they might be able to to do and Solomon lived that life. There was nothing that was kind of withheld from him, and we even heard him say that the, the desire of my eye withheld nothing from the desire of my eyes, from the desire of my flesh. If I wanted it, I took it. If I if it seemed good to me, I did it. And what does he end up saying? It's it's vanity. It's it's chasing the wind. It it actually brought no ultimate fulfillment at all. And so whatever comforts, material wealth and possessions can give in the moment, they are truly that. They are in the moment. And eventually they expire. All that we can buy with, as the King James would say, filthy lucre. What? It it, it does what Jesus says treasure on earth will do. It, it, It rusts. It decays, it, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. It, it, it does nothing. And if Elon Musk was to die today, we may ask the old question, well, how much did he leave behind? And the question is, or the answer is, um, everything. It's everything. He left everything, every red cent. He leaves behind. Why? Because we cannot take it with us when we go. Um, Just this uh, several months ago, we went with our homeschool community, our CC community up to Houston, and we saw this uh, at the museum where they had collected, uh, it was this Egyptian uh, collection, and we saw all of these, this material wealth that people had just stockpiled inside of the pyramids 
So that they could what? So they could take it with them into the afterlife. I'm sorry. They're gone. It's still here. They left it behind. Although it doesn't look as great as it did back then. Why? Because it has been put where rust and moth destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And so here, the psalmist, who is wisdom herself personified, is, is narrowing our focus to see this. And, and it's, it's this thing, right? We, we all sit here, we think about it in our chairs in church this morning, and, and if we had to think about it, we go, well, yeah, of course you can't take it with you when you go. I mean, how silly is that? And yet, we look at the world around us, and if we even take an inventory of our own lives, we think about maybe some of... You know, and I'm just going to pick on us all a little bit here, you know, like the, the creams and, the, and the, the hair dyes and the stuff that are in our cupboards. And think about why you purchased that product. What promise was made to you by the marketers and advertisers of those products that we, I'm going to include my, we buy, right? What is it? Oh, younger more youthful, more supple, more this, more that. What, and what is it trying to say? It's like, you will seem younger than you really are. Which means what? You, you will look like you're farther from death than you really are. Right? And so there's still these things, even for us, that in our hearts we're, we're kind of clamoring for. Now, does that mean that we should just let it all go? No, it's not what I'm saying. But I'm just trying to highlight that even those of us who may look at that and go, well, that's so silly, that there's still a part of us that goes after it as well. Most of us, I think, looks like we combed our hair. We probably, you know, did some different things to make us all seem like we're further from death than we really are this morning. And thank you for that, by the way. But it's, it's temporary, isn't it? And that's what the psalmist is trying to draw out. The, 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 whatever, whatever comfort you think that you're drawing from this, it's, it's fake. It's, it's temporary. It's not lasting. It expires. It's vanity. And so verse 3 and 4 show us that this is indeed a teaching or what is called a didactic psalm. And not that our psalmist just wants to declare something, but rather to teach us something. And this is beautiful, but it's beautiful because we remember that it's a song. And think about this for a moment, that those things that our parents or our tutors or teachers early on in our life really wanted us to learn, what did they do with that information? They put it in a song, didn't they? And here, even in Scripture, we can see that there is a particular truth that our Heavenly Father really wants us to get. Why does He really want us to get this? Because this problem that this psalmist is dealing with is something that has been being dealt with from the time of the fall, and it will be something that humankind will deal with until the end. It's that important. So here, God puts it to us as a song. In that way, we can remember that the Psalms give us the grammar of the life of a child of God. Just like when we want to really instill something in our children, we will put it in a song, whether that's the ABCs or the one, two, threes, or anything that you want them to do, like when you need to go potty, stop and go right away. 
That's a song that we are singing in our house right now. (laughs) Very important life lesson that we really want to instill in our youngest child. And so what do we do? We put it in a song. And so here, the psalmist is trying to teach us something. He puts it in a song, and he says he's going to open up a proverb for us and unpack a riddle of life. And so he begins in verse 5, and he gives us sort of the application in the beginning. Why should I fear in times of trouble? And Why does he ask that? He asks that because for us who belong to the Lord, we look around us and we see what? We see the rat race of life going on all around us, where people are spinning their wheels trying to get ahead, to get one more dollar, one more promotion, one more thing uh, that they can add into this accumulation of wealth that they can look around then at themselves and at least say to themselves, if not to the world, finally, what? I have made it. Look at what I have done. That should sound familiar from last week as Joel drew our attention to King Nebuchadnezzar. What was Nebuchadnezzar's sin? He, he gets to this certain point in his life and he walks out on the veranda uh, and looks out over his kingdom, surveys all of his kingdom, and what does he say? Look at what I have done. Famous last words, right? And the Lord strikes Nebuchadnezzar so that he becomes the personification of what we see in the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast, where he lives out literally the beast's plight. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 4. But that's what people all around us are doing. They're seeking to accumulate all this. They can finally say, I've arrived. Look at what I've done. Look at who I have become. And so what are they doing? They are showing by that that they, verse 6, trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Well, for those of us who are seeking not to live that way, when we see all of that happening around us, we start to maybe start to feel the pull of like, well, maybe I should do some of that as well. Why? I see this happening around me. And, and what, if I, what if I end up in a place where they have everything and I have nothing? And the psalmist says that there are bigger things to worry about than that. The psalmist says that essentially we can surrender the care of our souls, as Peter would put it, to the one who cares the most for us, rather than uh, trusting in wealth and the abundance of riches. And so he says, he, he draws out this truth that even though everyone is trying to get all that they can, and why are they trying to get all that they can? So that in some way, shape, or form, they might be able to cheat death. Because there's one problem with life. You know that, right? Essentially, it all boils down to one problem in life. You may have many problems. I may have many problems. But there's one problem that trumps them all. And that's death. The one problem with life is death. As the scriptures say, it is appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. 
And so do we, what do we have now? We have people. I have known people. I knew one lady whose father had set everything up so that when he died, he could be chirogenically frozen. So that when technology advanced to a certain point, he might somehow be resurrected to life again on this earth. Let me tell you something. The sorrow for that woman as she packed her father in ice is something unlike anything I've ever seen. Why? Because his hope was in the abundance of his riches that he had accumulated so that he could do this one thing to try and cheat death. And he couldn't do it. Now people are what? They're trying to see. Could they somehow download their consciousness onto some kind of hard drive so that later on they could be booted back up into something? Or just keep getting surgery after surgery to try and prolong this or prolong that. Now, praise God for some of those things that we can do. It's one thing to, you know, get a hip replacement or knee replacement. There are things that that God has allowed us to do. But when we get to that place where we're actually trying to cheat death, because our confidence is in what we've been able to do rather than trusting in the Lord, we have crossed over a line. And so the psalmist says in verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly. The older translations would say precious. And it's an interesting word to use there. We often think of the word precious as this sort of fluffy feeling of emotion. But the precious that's used there is the same precious that's used in the book of Samuel talking about the word of God being precious in the time of Eli. Now, if you remember that story... You think about the use of that word, you begin to understand why it's used here. Because when it is said in the time of Eli that the word of God was precious, it meant that it was non-existent. The word of the Lord was not coming at the time of Eli. And so it was precious because it was so rare that it was non-existent. And here to say that the cost of life is precious, the ransom of their life is precious, it is costly, and can never suffice. What this means is that there is no price. Right? Come on, everybody's got a price. God, just give me, just name it. Name your price. Name your price. Tell me, what can I pay? Your, your ransom is not for sale. You don't have Anything that you could give in return for the ransom of your own soul. And yet, there are so many that believe that if they just accumulate enough, that somehow, some way, they might not have to die. They could live on forever, verse 9, and never see the pit. But what happens? They look around and what do they see? They see that even the wise die. 
The fool and stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Others there is probably more accurately translated strangers. I've had a little bit of a bone to pick with some of my ancestors. My family have been here on this continent since people from the East have been on this continent. And I've got nothing to show for it. Kind of irks me a little bit. My name's on the dumb document and I got nothing to show for it. Why? It's not that there wasn't ever wealth there. It's that that wealth accumulated has been deplenished. It's gone to others and not those bearing my surname, but to strangers or to the government. One or the other. Okay, that's a different sermon. It goes to others. They leave their wealth to others. And it's not here saying to their progeny. It's saying to strangers, to those to whom it was not meant for. Because even if we come to grips with the fact that we will not be able to prolong our life, we can believe that in this legacy that we're living, that somehow we'll live on in those who come after us. And there is some sense in which there can be a holy thought there, but there are others who think of that in a way of that's really how they are going to live on. Not because of God's redemption and ransom, but just through their progeny. And yet they will find, as we all have, that the fool and stupid alike must perish along with the wise and leave their wealth to strangers. And what happens? Their graves are their homes forever. There's a sense in which the original translation here kind of gives a play on words. It's almost poking fun at uh, the idea of like a mausoleum where we build up these palaces to house our dead bodies. And essentially the psalmist is saying, yeah, and that's, that's your house forever. The one that you will never actually be able to enjoy. Their graves are their home forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. And, and this is that funny thing, right? Like those, there was a man once upon a time whose last name was America. But where is he and where are his people? And yet this land is named after him. In today's day and age, most of us don't think about having land named after us, though we might erect a thing over a piece of property that bears our name. But instead, what do young people today think about? This is really highlighted in a popular song by uh, the pop artist Bruno Mars called Billionaire. I want to be a billionaire. So bad. And, And so young people today, they may not think about having lands or countries named after them, but what do they think about? They think about their name in lights. We, we enjoy at home sometimes watching America's Got Talent. And there is definitely a difference between those who get up in this place of humility because they just have a gift and they're kind of finally bringing it out. And those who are there because they want to see their name in lights. 
Well, why, why are you here today? I, you know, my whole life I've just wanted to have my name up on the Las Vegas Strip and drive by in a, top, in a topless limo and see that name in light someday. That's, that's why. What is it? That's the same kind of vanity that the psalmist is talking about. And what does he say? Verse 12, this verse that is refrained at the end of the psalm, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish, right? Even if you were able to roll in like uh, Prince Ali and Aladdin with all that pomp and circumstance and 10,000 different things going on and the kind of wealth and opulence that it would take to pull off an entrance like that, still, your destination is like the beasts that perish. Now, like so many of the Psalms and the Proverbs, the psalmist here looks and sees a particular riddle in life. The wicked so often seem to find success and material gain and wealth and power and authority, while the godly seem to see calamity and ruin and be kept down all the live long day. Now, that's a generalization. It's not true for everyone. But often we kind of look at that in the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, look at that theme of how often the wicked seem to, uh, to um, flourish and the godly seem not to. And this can and has caused many to despair, to lose faith, to give up true religion and commit themselves to earthly gain rather than spiritual advancement. Now, verses 5 through 12 that we've just gone through have been called a commentary on Jesus' teaching that we'll read later on today during our gospel reading. But I want to rehearse it here together. Luke chapter 12 Verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So here we have two brothers. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Two brothers trying to divide an inheritance. Verse 14, but he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Which is funny because he is the judge over the whole earth. And he said to him, to them, to the brothers, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? I mean, this guy, this is not what our experience has been this year, by the way. In our little garden, we've had tons of stuff grow and almost nothing fruit. So we don't need any new barns. we got nothing to put anywhere. But this guy's got stuff just coming out of everywhere. And he's got so much that he doesn't have enough storage space to put it all. And so he thought to himself, what shall I do if I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
Truly, we see in Psalm 49 the teaching behind the riddle of the parable that Jesus gives here. This man, though he may have seemed to all the world as one of the most wise... I mean, look at this guy, man, he, he planted all this stuff and look how well it's doing. And I wonder what techniques he used and, and how he planned for this and, you know, get on Pinterest and see how he did everything. Like he, here he is, he did it all and he seemed so wise to the rest of the world. Surely in his day and time, he was invited to sit and judge at every gate for if he had so much, he must be very wise indeed. But while he seemed wise in the ways of the world, he was impoverished towards God. And so truly God's word to him was truth itself. Fool. Fool. In other words, no matter what others thought or said of him in this life, he really, truly was a fool. We can so often be deceived by material gain both in our own lives and in the lives of others. And it's not that wealth is bad and poverty is good. That's not what wisdom is trying to teach us in this psalm. There are other places in Scripture where wealth is purported as being the blessing of God. It's not that money and wealth and uh, provisions, accumulation of goods, is in, in and of itself bad or wrong or sinful. It's where we are placing our confidence and our trust in. Is it in those material goods, in that accumulation of wealth? Or is it in the Lord? It is not money that is the root of all evil, as some people misquote it as being. It is what? It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so it is not that wealth is bad and poverty is good. It is that we are called to have what St. Ignatius called holy indifference. We are called to do all that we do with all of our heart as unto the Lord and for His glory. That means that a Christian ethic means that, that, that this informs Christian ethics in the sense that when we have a job to do, as believers in Christ, as those who've been blood-bought by the Lord, we have an obligation to do all that we do with all of our heart as unto the Lord. We don't go and give it half. We give it all. And we pour out ourselves in our work and in our efforts. And we do it as unto the Lord and for His glory. Now, if what results from our faith-filled efforts is wealth in a material sense, praise God. Let me use it to continue my true end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Let me, in the same heart of generosity with which I have been blessed by God, bless others and further the work of His body, the church and the world. Yes, plan for the future. Yes, help my children. Yes, give to the poor. Yes, build for generations, but do not be ruled by that wealth, rather rule it as a good steward under your head, which is Christ. But if even after great effort, doing all that we do with all of our heart as unto the Lord and for his glory, we find that God has, instead of blessing us with material wealth, he has blessed us with his presence instead.
over and above material gain, then let us run in that wealth to do the same as we would do with money. To share the goodness of what God has given us in Himself to, praise God, use it to continue my true end, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let me in the same heart of generosity with which I have been blessed by God, bless others and further the work of His body, the church and the world. Yes, plan for the future. Yes, help my children. Yes, give to the poor. Yes, build for generations. But not be ruled by that wealth, but rather rule it as a good steward under your head, which is Christ. And yes, there is a purposeful word-for-word repetition there. Because each of those blessings of wealth, though not the same, carry the same weight. To exemplify what Paul said, and this is what Ignatius was getting at when he said that we ought to have holy indifference. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul speaking, he says what? Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he wasn't talking about winning an Olympic gold medal. He was talking about, by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, living with holy indifference. So that whether he was in abundance or in lack, his confidence was not in what he had or lack of confidence in what he didn't have, but rather his hope, his trust, his confidence was firmly planted on the Lord himself. Getting back to the psalm, what does the foolish wealth of the wicked gain them? Absolutely nothing. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. It's too dear. And so again, to belabor the point and beat a dead horse, this is bleak. This psalm is saying, look, you are going to die and there is nothing that you can do about it. And no matter how much you may gain in this life, you will never gain enough to get out of death. Praise God, in the third part of this psalm, it turns a corner. Psalm 49, 13-20. It says, This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed to Sheol. Now sometimes in Scripture, Sheol just merely re- refers to the grave. Being buried in the grave. But here, if we keep reading, what do we see? We see that here, Sheol represents... Their destruction it says, death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Verse 15. 
This is one of those big but God moments in Scripture. Everything is bleak. You are going to die. There is nothing that you can do about it. No matter what you do to gain everything in this life, nothing will suffice. Verse 15, the confidence of the psalmist here says what? But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. What faith-filled words are these? For He will receive me. Why don't we have to be afraid? Because while the rest of the world is chasing after the wind, those who belong to the Lord can be confident that He will ransom their soul from the power of hell and the grave, for He will receive them. So he goes on, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see the light. But will we see a light? Yeah, it spoke of it already. Verse 14, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. What is that morning? That morning is the morning of God's glorious resurrection. It is that eternal hope for which we are waiting. Even though every single one of us, should the Lord tarry, will die. Yet, our plight is not that the grave will be our home forever but that there is a morning coming when all those who belong to God in Christ will be raised up with Him at His glorious appearing. Is that not what we are hoping for? We await the resurrection. We await that morning. I love that he uses the imagery of mourning here for us as Christians, every time we lay our head down at night, it is like a little death. And every time our eyes open on that pillow in the morning, or if you're like me, under the pillow, it's like a little resurrection where we have laid our head down at night and closed our eyes, doing what? Surrendering ourselves to the providence of our God. Not living in fear of what the rest of the world is doing, what the rest of the world has going on, what they're trying to do to cheat death and get away with it and live forever. We lay our head down and we entrust ourselves to the Lord. That's why we pray at night. And we experience a little death so that every morning we experience a little resurrection. That every day is foreshadowing for us that hope that we have. That one day, whether in pain or not, we will close our eyes. And when they open them again, we will be with the Lord. For as Scripture says, to be absent from the body for the believer is what? to be present with the Lord.
So he says, verse 19, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. But that's not our end. And while he in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish, yet for the upright. And what does that mean? The upright, those who earned it? No, it's already told us that there's nothing we can do to earn it. Psalm 49 declares the glorious grace of the Lord. As God himself will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Oh, the glorious light of the hope of the resurrection. That great morning when God's people reign together with him over sin and death. Not because of our own works, but because of the redemption. The ransom of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Twice we are told not to fear. That's what we are not to do. What then should we do in light of Psalm 49? I don't often do this, but I'll give you three R's. Okay, it just kind of worked out that way, at least the first two. So I just had to go with it. All right, three three R's. What should we then do? We should repent. We should repent of our reliance and faith and material wealth and things rather than God. Now, that doesn't mean that I think every one of us in here is totally sold out and committed to our material wealth and possessions, but there are sneaky little ways in our hearts where we have still tried to hang on to those things. I've seen it in my own life this week. I've had to, even as I prepared this week, pray and repent of those things. And so I want to call all of us to that same kind of repentance. Take an inventory. Even now as we prepare for communion and we're invited into that kind of space anyways to take an inventory of our life, to pray with David. Oh God, search me and know me inside and out. See if there's any evil way within me and lead me in paths of righteousness. God, would you highlight, would you show me, Holy Spirit, would you highlight in my life those areas where instead of trusting in you, I've started maybe in even small insidious ways to rely and trust in those things which I have begun to accumulate for myself. God, help me to see those things so that I can repent of those things. Right? And there may be ways that the Lord will call you to have fruit in keeping with that repentance and what it means to really live open-handedly with those things. That's not for me to say, but for the Lord. So repent. Second R. Renew. What then should we do? We should repent of our reliance and faith and material wealth and things rather than God. And we should renew our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone as our only grounds of hope in this life or the next. God, would you renew in me today faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, as my only hope in life and death. And then lastly, refocus. We should refocus our sight on the things that really matter. So repent, renew, and refocus. And so to help us refocus, I'm going to draw our attention as we close to Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. And in our epistle today, we'll continue from there. Colossians 3, 1 and 4, if you remember, says this, if then You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So repent, renew, and refocus. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Before we pray, I just want to leave you with this quote from Jim Elliott. He was a missionary and martyr in South America, famously quoted as saying, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's holy indifference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today, for this word from Psalm 49. God, while the rest of the world chases the wind, I pray that you would put in us a renewed boldness to throw all of our hope and confidence and trust, satisfaction, comfort, and joy upon you. That you would be that source for us. Not our bank account, not our 401k, not our investments, not our material possessions, not how much we've been able to stockpile or put in reserve. God, any and all of those things which we may say that we possess, we receive them as gifts and blessings from you that you've put into our hands to steward for your glory. God, may they not rule us, but rather with your help, may we rule them according to your purpose and your will. God, forgive us for the ways in which we have put our confidence in material wealth and things rather than you. Help us, God, to renew our confidence in Christ alone as the one in whom we have hope in this life and the next. And God, help us by your Holy Spirit to refocus, to set our mind on things above and not on earthly things. Lord, we know that we can only do this by your grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. So we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as we sing the psalm together today and move into a time of communion.